Welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the robotics community in Australia. My guest today is Louisa de Vries. Louisa and I met last year at the January 22 conference that I hosted in Lilydale, and it's been my mission to get her on the podcast since then, and today is my lucky day. So Louisa, good morning and welcome, and thank you for joining me. Great. Oh, thank you, Nikki. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be on your show and uh, I think that you've done over 100 now, so I'm quite honoured to be on here. <laughs> oh, listen, probably if I got you when I wanted to, you would have been the pre-100. So anyway, better late than not at all. <laughs> Thank you. So you've been working as an engineer for many years now across various industries. What was your first introduction to robotics? Oh, uh, first introduction to robotics. Um, I started working for Holden uh, well, back in the 90s, actually, and um I think the thing that really struck me there was when you go into the body shop, there's um, all these processes that are um, dirty and dangerous and, and whatever. And if you go into a body shop, they have robots there. And then you go into final assembly or general assembly, which is the area that I worked in, and there's lots of people. There's one big, long um, production line, and you might see the odd robot um, in a couple of places, but generally it's people doing the assembly. And I I would always be puzzled as to why you'd use robots in one place and people in the other. And then it became clear to me over time that, you know, robots are fantastic in some in some instances. So in a body shop where you've got really dangerous operations, issues with access, it's very precise, so you need to get the quality right, then a robot absolutely makes sense. But if you're just doing assembly and assembling lots of different stuff all the time, um, then then it's it's, it's better to use people. And there were certain operations like the um, where the instrument panel goes into the car or where the um, glass goes in that, that was done by a robot. And, and again, that makes sense. If you do the business case, that stacks up. But that, yeah, that was something that struck me at the beginning with, um, with robots and, and when to use them. So you're working for Bosch Australia Manufacturing, otherwise known uh, colloquially as BAMS here, managing the consulting team. Tell us about your current role. Yeah, so I've been working for Bosch for a couple of years now. I um, first came to Bosch in um, when we were working on a big project as a project manager, and after I was uh, that project finished, our general manager of, of BAMS said to me, oh, "What do you think about starting a consulting group?" It wasn't something that I'd ever considered at all, and I, I guess my first thought was, "Well, I don't know. I don't have the right experience for it." And, and then I suppose when I thought back, I've been working in um, manufacturing from various in various areas for um, over 20 years in working on a lot of different stuff but actually that's what really suits consulting so it did start to make sense to me so in the the consulting group it's manufacturing consulting so we work with companies from startups um, and and also established manufacturers um, and really just helping them with making manufacturing decisions so the manufacturing planning so the startups we work with um, could be anything from there's one company that was making smart tags for cows that was a startup with a couple of people and they just need to make these tags to be able to gather the data for what cows are doing out in the paddocks and we're working with other companies that are major renewable um, companies that um, you know, we'll hear a lot about over the next few years um, but the the common theme with all of them is they have these fantastic ideas uh, but they're lacking the the um, manufacturing know-how in-house. So that's where we can help them with their 
their planning of, you know, how do they scale up? How do they get from the lab through to making, you know, in some cases, millions of products a year? Um, what does that look like? Do they just go from from the lab to fully automated high um, throughput equipment or is there a step in between where you might have a pilot line and, and scale things up and learn as you go? So taking them through the, the, the strategy planning and, and doing things like running design for manufacturing and assembly workshops, lean line design, um, that's what we're doing with, with startups and companies that are maybe starting new products, but also how can you improve efficiency in your current operations? So with existing companies, they just want to get more throughput or they're having a, a couple of bottlenecks in their process that, and they want some assistance on how to solve those issues that we're working with them as well. When I met with Peter and I bumped into you at the cafe there, um, he, he said to me, you guys are flat out. How many are in your team and like how do you manage who you on board and is there some sort of process in this? Well, um, actually, we've got a very tiny team. <laughs> Um, there's four of us, including myself and a student. Um, but what we do have access to in Bosch is we have access to other people in BAMS. So there's, I think, around 130 people in BAMS who um, most, and, well, nearly everyone has manufacturing experience of some sort. Um, and then we also have access to the, the whole Bosch community. And Bosch is a company of 400,000 people. So we never have a problem with getting people to help us. Listen, I think it's a fantastic marriage of what you're doing and the resources available because I don't actually know of another organisation that can have this offering that you can just dip in and out of your pool of expertise. It's, it's actually invaluable. Yeah, it's been interesting because there's a lot of um, lean manufacturing consultants around and there's some people that can help with manufacturations. But I guess at Bosch, we can offer you know everything to do with manufacturing. We make manufacturing equipment for ourselves um you know we manufacture stuff so it just made sense that BAMS when the automotive industry declined in Australia what could we do well we can make um automation and manufacturing solutions for external companies and I think it really fills a gap particularly in Australia where you don't have that the, the number of you know large companies like Bosch that can help you with those solutions so yeah it definitely makes sense and um, we're very busy as a result of that yeah, and it's also relatively um, a young new start in the the company. You've got you've been going about a year and a half now. Is that right? Yep, we started in April last year, so it is quite new. Although I would have to say that BAMS were doing this sort of stuff before, um, but they were doing it sort of squeezing it in around their other work. So project managers were running design for manufacturing workshops, for example. Yeah. Well, congratulations. And to anyone out there listening, if you need uh, some solutions or some help, then Louisa is the person to hit up and definitely connect with her on LinkedIn as a start and then send her a message. You previously worked on an innovative predictive analysis project nicknamed Trains with Brains. What was that all about? <laughs> yeah, I, I worked at a company um, down a rail a few years ago and we were working on this um, project in the innovation department that, that I was managing um, and it was building a predictive analytics platform for trains. So when the Waratah trains in Sydney were um, first launched, they were collecting 30,000 pieces of data on every train every 10 minutes and they basically put sensors all over the train and thought we'll just store that information and see what we can do with it later. And so you know, after storing loads and loads of data over over a few years they said what can we do with this so we started to build a platform where we could interrogate that data um, and get insights about and start to predict when things were going to fail so the rail industry is very conservative industry where they 
just um, basically do maintenance on a on um, a time interval. So before something's going to fail, they'll make sure they they replace that part. Um, but this was around predicting when something's going to fail and and um, you know and, and being able to stretch out the the intervals between maintenance, I guess. So not in not in critical areas, but um, yeah, it was a really interesting project. And what I really enjoyed about it was we were collaborating with a few universities um, around the the um, the analytics side of things and AI and um, and we were really we we're working with Microsoft at the time and really starting to stretch the capability of their you know like cloud computing and um, yeah great project to be involved in yeah and after um, you left Holden you worked for Swinburne University on an electric bus research project what were your insights gathered there yeah so Swinburne University I'd been at Holden for eighteen years and. I wanted to do something that was sort of related to what I'd done before, but obviously giving me um, uh, access to a, a you know different career path. So I worked at Swinburne on this electric bus research project as project manager, and um, I think the, the the project itself I learned a lot from. I learned a lot about project managing and about managing you know budgets and timelines and things like that. But I think. Um, what it also gave me a good insight into university system. I managed. Um, I, I had the opportunity to do a bit of lecturing and um, tutoring, and I, I realised the importance of making sure that students have the right um, training as, before they graduate. And I, that's something that you know at Holden we had two hundred students a year that used to come through um, as undergrads and get training at Holden, and, and Bosch is the same. But I, I think it's critically important that we we train and support our students to make sure they've got the right experience before they they graduate and when they graduate as well. That's actually a common theme that came out of January 22 last year, Louisa, with some of the companies that I was speaking to is that these graduates land in a, in a company like let's say Bosch, for instance, and you basically have to, in a way, retrain them from scratch because they're not industry fit, if I could put it that way. Do you agree with that assessment? Yeah, that's right. Um, Yes, actually, I was out at a company yesterday that has a um, apprentice school, and they, you know, it's, it's the same thing. We have to make sure it's a responsibility of, of industry to make sure that that apprentices and and engineers are, are ready and have the right support as they go through. You know, we've got a student in our group; she's fabulous. She's studying um, Nicola studying um, law and engineering. What a combo! Six and a half year degree. Um, now we see fabulous students that come through, but we we need to make sure they've got the right experience. Yeah, and I think also because um, like technology is changing that fast that in some ways it's it's important for engineers to have micro-credentials that they've, well, they've got the engineering degree or anyone working in this technical field and that they can go to TAFEs or even universities to do like a micro-credential and get them up to speed with latest technology. Yeah, that's so true. And I think at university you are taught how to learn but it's really when you're in industry that you'll you'll really get your the um, learning in the key areas that you need. You know, we have students coming through here and getting involved in simulations and robotics and programming and whatever. And it's stuff that that they that there's no way that they would be able to learn um, that while they're at university. So uh, yeah, yeah, they need to keep keep um, learning as much as they can at university, but also making sure that they they um, you know, tap into what's going on in industry and like you said the micro credentials getting getting really good in certain areas is really important as well yeah and us that goes for everyone because I think 
you know, you think you've done your basic degree and, oh, great, I'm now educated. No, that's the start of your education. That <laughs> Sorry out there, people listening. That's just the start. <laughs> this is a continual journey. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I know you're absolutely passionate about encouraging girls in STEM. You have two teenage daughters who are starting to think about their future. What do you think we could be doing to introduce girls to STEM and support them in their career choice? Yes, that is an area that I'm very passionate about. Um, you know, I, I studied engineering um, a while ago now, and you know, it was tough. I was the only girl in um, mechanical engineering. Um, there, were, there was another one in civil and a few in electrical, but uh, you know, it, it, it's tough, and and you had to um, be quite thick-skinned to make it through. And um, and I guess I felt quite out of place um, at, at times as well because a lot of the guys were brought up with you know, on farms or pulling things apart and things like that. And to be honest, I wasn't one of those people, but I was always fascinated about how things worked. I had a motorbike, don't tell my daughter, but when I was 16, um, I got my motorbike licence and took off. <laughs> and I was always fascinated about motorbikes and cars, um, which is why I went to work at Holden. But, you know, until I'd worked at Holden and, and started to to build some prototype cars myself, um, I, you know, I felt like um, the boys sort of had a, a bit of a leg up over over me. Um, but the, I guess the, what can you do to use girls to, to STEM? Um, when my daughter was in, my oldest daughter was in primary school. It took me a couple of years, but I finally managed to get a um, the Lego first first Lego League competition. Um, I got a team together with in the school, so I brought in some sponsorship, and I really wanted it to be a girls in STEM. Um, program, but the the school said, well, how about we have a girls team and a mixed team just to make sure everyone's got an opportunity, which I thought was great. So we 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 had those two teams, and I went in um, one afternoon a week while they were training up for their competition, and oh, wow, that was an eye opener. Classrooms are chaos. Apparently, according to the teacher, they were really engaged, but um... <laughs> <laughs> that's what it looks like. <laughs> Equals chaos. <laughs> Fine. <Yeah. laughs> the day before the competition they lost their program for their robot and I thought this is terrible you know the whole thing's just fallen apart and the kids were amazing they said oh we'll just rewrite it and they rewrote it ready for the competition the next day you know that's that's how kids think um and uh, and the girls ended up winning the competition for their presentation and they both the teams their robots actually worked in in the competition and I think um you know, to normalise it for kids when they're in primary school is really important. You know, my kids have a, a, a mum that's an engineer and they think it's normal, but a lot of their friends watch me, yeah, what does your mum do, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I think just to, to try and introduce girls and, and, and normalise it at a young age in, in primary school is really important. You know, I, I completely agree with you there because I think that's where they, they start clicking with their friends and they're going, you know, they, they really make subtle choices and I don't even think they're aware of it it's just they, they're following the crowd so if their friends are going this direction of being um, in humanities they'll follow that and I wonder whether the school should you know I'm putting it back on schools because that's where it's going to start is that they need to get more women in knowing who to tap on so if there are any teachers listening tap on my shoulder because I'll immediately refer you to Louisa to go and talk to young kids about what a career could look like um, you know as you say what is an engineer um, I think engineers are the best people on earth because you can fix stuff. I would rather have an engineer on my team than anyone else because I know, listen, you're going to figure this out and you're going to make it work. So 
you know, and we do actually still have a bit of a problem, not just in Australia, worldwide. And again, it also relates to putting up photos of yourself. You know, when people do Google searches, who, who comes up? So there's a mixture of great for men. And of course, we love the men, but there are also women coming up that you go, oh, who's this woman and what is she doing? And I think it's a little bit on women to get their social media profiles. And I know a lot of people don't, you know, they think they don't want to put themselves out there. But I actually think it's really important that you do it. And you actually put photos when you do maybe articles or write things that they know it's a woman that's out there. It's not elder priest who could be anyone, you know. Um, mm. So I do think we could be doing more, you know, women who are already in the industry or in tech that we can sort of help and pave the way for people coming in our slipstream. Mm. Yeah, it's a good point. And uh, I was at an industry event last year. It was an Impact Award um, evening and uh, I watched a row of men come up and get their awards. And I, you know, I wonder how many, how much of that is to do with that men tend to put themselves forward and women are more reluctant to do that. But yeah, it's a, it's a good it's point. Definitely. And uh, this is a point I've hammered on my podcast and to anyone in the audience listening today, if you've got an opportunity to um, apply for a grant or enter a competition or an awards night, do it. Like, don't be shy because I think women are so hard on themselves. You know that story about when they read a job um, description, they go, oh, well, I can only do 98%. So I don't think I can apply. Men look and go, oh, I can do about 63. I'm fudging the figures here, but I know there's something like that. And they go, oh, this job's for me. I can do it. I'll be perfect. You know, I don't know why women think we have to be perfect at everything. You just go, oh, look, I can do about half of it. It's fine. I can apply for it and I can learn because obviously if you can do 50% of it, you can learn. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, yes, and that definitely applied with, the, with this job, you know, when Peter was talking to me about last year. The first thing is, well, I've never done that before. I don't know how to do that. But, yeah, of course, the guys have the same thing. you just got to, I think, have confidence in yourself and, you know, believe that you can do it. I'm so glad you raised that, you, that you thought, no, you couldn't do it, but you took the job. I actually was talking to a lady last night and, you know, she was mentioning, you know, some stuff that she's a little bit, you know, hesitant. I said, just do it. Just just put yourself out there. You know, don't think because um, I'm doing the podcast, I'm always, you know, I, I speak to absolutely phenomenal people, yourself included, that I go, you know, who am I to be talking to you about, you know, what you're doing? But the point is, it's not about me. It's about you. So, like, I'm very comfortable with that. But it could have stopped me initially even talking to people because, you know, I have to send this message saying would you like to be on my podcast and they go like who the hell are you <laughs> and I go no I just want to talk to you that's what it's, you know we all have these situations my point is we all have this this oh look I, I don't know and I think the starting point should be yes I can do it until now I can't and then I need actually need to ask for help but we exclude yeah. ourselves from opportunities because we think we need to be perfect and know everything and you don't mm. yeah yeah so what how has it landed with your children? Can I ask this? Is your are your kids at the age of going to universities, or like how has how has your career influenced their thinking? Uh, so my oldest is just choosing her year ten subjects, so she'd like to be an architect. But there's different courses around, so you know there's there's some that are architect and combined, and she's still working through that. But I think the most and my youngest daughter, she's she's not really at that point where she's thinking about what she, what she wants to do, but. The most important thing is both of them realise they can do, you know, they have choices and it's what they choose that they want to do um, and that they'll be supported, you know, whatever their choice. But 
I'm pre- I'm I'm pleased. You know, I, I didn't want to push them to be an engineer just because they're mummies, but uh, I want to make sure that they they feel confident to to do what they want to do. That's so important. And again, that goes to competency because once you, you know, with regards to what do you do at home and how do you educate your children? So I've got two sons. So from the get go, they were cooking, they were, you know, they were doing cleaning, they, they can do a washing machine. It's give, building kids um, and equipping them with skills that they can go forward and they're confident that whatever comes their way, they can actually learn to do things. So I think those are actually quite important building blocks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, we'll give we'll give the young mothers out there advice of what they should be doing with their children. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, new technologies. Um, what do you see? Think we're going to see more of, and um, what are the technologies that are really helping you now? Yeah. Oh, interesting. So the pandemic has really changed things uh, um, for for so many reasons. But but one was in what sort of tools we're using. So. We um, now are using a lot of simulation tools. So we use Siemens simulation tools um, and we're doing a lot of stuff around plant simulation. So what we can do is um, build up a, a plant in, in a simulation. So all the different stations, what each operator's doing, what a robot might be doing. And then you can start to look at throughput and cycle time and bottlenecks and things like that. And it's quite quick to set up. So it might take two or three days to go out to a, a factory, gather some data, set up a simulation, and then you can start to try different scenarios. So that was one thing they were doing. But the other thing that was really prompted by the pandemic was we were having a lot of trouble getting PLC hardware during the pandemic, and, and it was starting to affect our commissioning because you know, we've got stuff we're building out in the factory and we need to commission it, and we're doing PLC programming. So what we were doing was that we started doing PLC programming and virtual commissioning um, so we could do most of the commissioning before the equipment even arrived. And then when the PLC hardware arrived and we, we could finish off the build, uh, we could upload the, the PLC program. Um, and, and, and it was actually quite um, close to what we're doing in our virtual commissioning. So now we've, we're doing a lot of, um, we've basically built a digital twin where we can upload and download the PLC program and do commissioning. And all the physics is there. So, um, you know, if, if a box what weighs five kilos heavier you can see what impact that will have on your, your factory so we can do um from plc um um sim- like use the tools from right from plc programming right through to simulating a process in detail with all the physics or then the, the plant simulation so i think that's that's pretty interesting and um we even one company wanted us to do a um a pilot um a, a plant layout which which was for their investor round. And um, so we did this whole layout um, and then we started using some gaming technology to, to, to render it and to, to do a fly through and, and it looked fantastic. And I think that's, um, now there's other universities that are doing more in sort of virtual training and things like that, but it's an area that's growing so fast. You know, you hear some of the negatives about, about AI and technology, but I think in, in manufacturing, some great things happening at the moment. And how are you personally keeping up to date with new technology? Well, I'm just learning from the people that are around me. To be to be quite honest, you know, we've got some. We've got one guy who actually is one of our um, interns, who is our digital twin expert, and he is tapped in with people across Bosch and having uh, you know evening phone calls with them, and he he knows the most, the most about it in um, bands. So we're all learning from him, and and I think that's you know so important to. Um, 
we do consulting. We do consulting with lots of different companies in lots of different areas. We can't be experts in everything, but mm. if we, um, you know, can tap into what other people are doing, it's it's so helpful and so important. I think you're quite right then. I think this is also a generational skill set that um, I did notice when I was at Bosch because Peter took me for a tour that um, you've got, you know, you've got a range of ages working there and that's quite important because I do think the younger, kudos to the younger ones, you're doing something right because they're very inquisitive and they, they're so whip smart and so quick to onboard new things. Um, and of course, I always think it's easier if someone already knows something to just come and teach you because for me to go from scratch, it's just a headache for me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm assuming that you just go and get these youngsters in here. They'll teach us. Oh, absolutely. They're great. <laughs> Louisa, you've had a really fascinating career. Um, what have been your biggest challenges and, and how have you managed them? Biggest challenges? Um, I think the, I think the um, in, during the pandemic, I was working on a ventilator project and that was a one big challenge. Um, and I, I guess it's sort of, brought together a few challenges that I've had over these. Um, so basically it was a company called Grey Innovation that decided that they 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 got the Smith's Medical um, license to the ventilator that they were making and um, wanted to stand up local suppliers um, to um, make all the, the, the critical parts for the ventilator and assemble the ventilator. We're on a really um, tight timeline. And, you know, it sounds a bit funny now, but at the time it was like, you know, this was vital for the, the survival of Australia because we needed all these ventilators. Um, so there was a big sense of urgency to get that project through. Um, so there were a few um, ex-automotive engineers were brought in because we had the skill set of you know doing things like this quickly and working with suppliers. Um, but I guess for me personally, there was the challenge of you know how do you how do you manage this full-on job in the middle of a pandemic with a family at home? Um, you know, and, and just finding the balance between all of that. So we were working endless hours. We were working. Um, I started on Thursday before Easter. I worked Good Friday, Good Saturday. Good, and in fact, and on on the Saturday was when I met um, first introduced to Bosch because they were going to do the testing equipment for the project. I worked Sunday, and then from there on Saturdays and sometimes Sundays as well. Um, so just managing, keeping you know, the, the, the family um, engaged and happy. My husband was working at home, um, but also making sure that we were delivering at work and, uh, and, 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 you know, and that I was getting the rest that I needed, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, it's important to plan your, your work, plan your time, um, you know, but also keep your priorities at the, uh, understand what the priorities are for you as a person as well you know, to, to manage your work-life balance as, as well as doing giving your all to your job. And reflecting now on it, do you think there's something that you could have done differently? Or I always look at it, you know, when I'm in a stressful situation, my first question is in a week's time, is this going to make any difference to me? You know, am I going to still be thinking about it? And even later, a year's time. So now seeing yourself removed and reflecting, do, do you, I know it's a bit of an odd, you know, it's, it's already happened, but it's always good for the learning going forward because you would have learned something out of that situation. So do you think you would have done something differently? One thing that I did learn, um, I learned a lot of things, but one thing that really stuck in my mind, um, the project at the time was, was you know, incredibly stressful. Um, but at the end of the day, what happened to those ventilators, they are in the, the government stockpile and, you know, thank goodness they haven't been needed. 
And I, I think it just makes you realise that, yes, work is very important and some jobs are, you know, are, are quite, um, you know, maybe critical, but at the end of the day, it is a job and you, you need to keep in perspective, you know, the stresses that you're under at a certain time at work, it is a job, someone else could do the job. Um, and the, the, I saw some people that were going through a lot of personal stress during that time, um, you know, trying to keep up with their work and it is just work, you know? Yeah, yeah. that, that is a sad news for companies out there, but that's pretty much my view. We, we are replaceable, and, but your family's not. And that's actually, yeah. that's actually really important to keep in mind that, and I think, you know, especially for people our age, like I'm older than you, so, but, you know, you get into your 50s and then suddenly marriages split up. And, you know, that's why the divorce rate is so high is that it's actually really important to make sure that, you know, you grow together and you keep in mind that because we do get embroiled in our careers and, you know, it's fascinating and it's exciting and everything. But the people at home, those are the people that after this career is over, these are the people that you're going to live with and have the rest of your life. That's right. And as you know, Nikki, kids grow up so quickly um, and you don't get that time back again. You know, and you think I, I know a lot of people who wish that they'd spent more time with their kids when their kids were younger. Well, you can't go back in time. So you, you need to to make sure you get that balance right at the right time. Yeah, it's actually a little bit um, unfair how it works, because when we do have time for them, of course, then they're off doing their own things. But then they've learned the lesson from us that, unfortunately, we weren't that important to our parents when we were young. <laughs> so to all the parents out there, listen to us old ladies. We know what we're talking about. <laughs> We've raised the kids. We know the time comes and goes. And, you know, you've got like a critical impact time, I think, up until the age of before you've got time to socialize your child if you haven't done that properly then well basically in a nutshell no one's going to like your child or you because they can't behave you know we we live in a society where people actually have to abide by rules so your child is very special to you but to the rest of the world you're just another you know human being and you do have to abide by rules and regulations and don't go to cafes and throw tantrums etc oh louisa you've got me on my pet little tirade <laughs> yes, i'll get off my little chair yeah do you have a mentor <laughs> just one thing that i say about that, that during the pandemic i thought it was fantastic to see guys with having like little kids pop up in the back of their screen so <laughs> it's not just that it's not just the, the woman and with that my dog's barking and making its presence known again it's fine <laughs> tell me you're navigating your career have you had a mentor um yeah interesting question so I've tried I've tried both formal and informal mentors um so a couple of times at Holden we had a formal mentoring program I found that kind of a little bit awkward I did get get um I did get some value out of it and I know my sister has 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 really enjoyed having a formal mentor um, and, and got a lot out of that. But for me, I've made sure that I've got informal mentors. They probably don't even know who they are. But, you know, every now and again, it'll be a phone call and we'll have a bit of a chat about, you know, what we're up to, what our careers are doing and blah, blah, blah. For me, that's my mentoring and it's been really critical and it's changed over the years. Uh, you know, people come and go. Um, but it's I think it's really important to talk to other people about your career about the challenges you're having with people you're working with or some ideas about, do you think I should go for that job or that job? Or, you know, it's, it, it, it is really important. If, um, and I can see that some people I work with are a lot more comfortable with doing that than others. Um, but I think the people that, that do talk to other people about their, their work in, you know, in sort of informal mentoring um, way, I think, 
you know, like tap into the key people as their informal mentors. They really value, get, get a lot of value from it. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think um, to your point for being an informal mentor, um, keep in mind that you probably informally mentoring people and you don't even know it. So, you're, you know, I always... Look, I always, I, you know, because we we creatures of we watch people the whole time, you know, and you talk about stressful situations, your whole team will be watching you and going, what are you doing with the stress? You know, how are you handling it? How do you react when your back's to the wall? Do you go out into an all out fight or do you, how do you manage conflict re, um, resolution? And when you don't agree with your teammates, they're watching all of this and they're taking yes. cues of how they should be behaving themselves. So um, I do think we probably for for everyone we informal mentors in a way because we're constantly watching and picking up on people's behavior especially leaders that you look at them and you go well if they're behaving like that it gives me a license to do what um, I can you know what I'm doing and that's not necessarily the right behavior Mm. and also making time that if if someone you know one of the interns comes to ask for help I always make sure that I, I have time or say can we make some time later to to follow up because yeah they they need that guidance as well don't they yeah and definitely and if they come in to ask for help I think um then they really want it you know if they actually come and actually yeah. articulate it then you go yes I'll, I'll stop and I'll, I'll give you the help and I'm mindful of your time any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our audience with um I think the I think the key to to any job but particularly in my work at the moment is just working with other people you know I've over I've, I've I think I might have already touched on it, but um, you can't be expected to know everything. You can't be expected to be an expert in all areas. But communication and collaboration are just so so important, and it, and um, in engineering and a lot of other jobs as well. But I think learning from other people. We go out to a lot of manufacturing facilities and talk to different people and see all these innovative um, projects that people are working on. And I think just keeping your eyes open and learning as much as you can. You know. Um, and and that's, that goes through your whole career um, and that's what makes work interesting but it's also what I think brings out the best in people as well working together. Thank you so much Louisa it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm so delighted that we actually managed to get this interview done today. Um, yeah. Where can the audience reach you what's the best place? Probably LinkedIn. Okay yeah yeah so there's your invitation to the audience. Um, connect with Louise on LinkedIn, send her a message, and uh, I know she will respond to you. It may take a day or two, Louisa, with permission, I can say that, because she's an extremely busy lady, uh, but she will get back to you. So, Louisa, with that, thank you so much. And um, I'm sure we'll have a follow-up in a year's time to see how BAMS is going and how your department has grown and the value that you're adding to the industry. Great. Thank you so much for the opportunity, Nikki. It's a great pleasure. And to our audience, I hope you're well wherever you are in the world. Look after yourself and I look forward to your company again. Mm -hmm.